0: How do we know who God is? What is it that reveals to us our understanding of God? Well, this this Psalm gives us a couple of powerful, powerful images of how God reveals himself to us, his people. This is a very classic poem, a classic Psalm from scripture. In fact, C.S. Lewis called this the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So high praise from one of the great writers of the last hundred years and an incredible psalm, a incredible poem or song to God about how he communicates to us. So this psalm is is very simple. It's one of the Torah psalms. So just like Psalm 1, which was the first Torah psalm, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 are those three Torah psalms that talk about the law of God, the word of God, and they form, they, they really carry like really important places in the Psalter. So um, all three of those structure the the Psalter or the book of Psalms in a significant way. So we're going to dig into this. And just like Psalm 1, how we saw this kind of simple poem, which was about, it was a Psalm, but it was also kind of felt like wisdom literature. It felt like it should should be in the book of Proverbs. This too kind of has both of those elements. It's praising God, but it's also speaking about wisdom and how we know God. So we're going to dig into this. The structure is pretty simple. Verses 1 to 6 speak about how God's revelation is in nature. Uh, Verses 7 to 10 speak about how God's revelation is through his word, through scripture. And then the final part just talks about our response to God's revelation. So let's get into this. First, we see in verses 1 to 6, God's revelation in creation. God's revelation in creation. Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the surrounding nations in in this time, they worshiped the skies, they worshiped the sun and moon, they looked up and they saw gods, and what we're going to see in this psalm is these creations, these uh, aspects of creation, are not gods themselves, but they're made for God to testify to God's greatness. So all these things are servants to tell us who God is. And so he looks to the skies and David is exalting God and saying that God communicates who he is through his creation, that the heavens are declaring, they're shouting about who God is every single day. You know, in our day, we tend to see the creation the sun and the moon or things like that as simply accidents of a great explosion that happened a long time ago. We don't see any intention in our modern world behind these creations. We don't see any communication. But those who read God's word and read Genesis 1 understand that God is communicating who he is through his creation. And in fact, this whole first section of the psalm seems to be a meditation on the creation account from Genesis 1. And so that's what he's probably doing here is he's thinking about God's creation and how it communicates who he is. Verse 2 says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So day to day, what he means is every day, right? Day after day is speaking about who God is. Um, Every night gives us knowledge about who God is. When the sun sets, we have a, a view into the heavens. We can see the stars, the planets. We can see into the depths of God's creation, and we can see how small we are by comparison, just like we saw in Psalm 8. And so he's looking and he's seeing the creation of God gives us insight into who God is. God is revealing himself through his creation. And then in verse three, he says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So the language here is confusing. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks it's confusing at first, but I'm sure this is kind of strange to you. So there are no, no are no speech. There is no words. Um, but then he says, whose voice is not heard. I think the translation here in the ESV is a little bit confusing. I think the NIV maybe has it a little more right essentially what this is communicating is there's not actual speech there's not actual words that's not what he's talking about so he clarifies this as he's saying the heavens are declaring god's glory he's saying it's not through audible words it's not as if the creation around us is speaking to us but he says their voice their metaphorical voice goes out through all the earth so the way that the, the creation communicates about god is not in the same way that the Bible communicates about God, but it is a powerful, clear indication of God's majesty, of his goodness. Uh, You know, I wonder if when Paul wrote the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, he had in view this psalm, as he talked about how people can see God's power, his divine attributes through the creation. And so we're all without excuse because we all know there's a God deep down inside, and yet we choose to reject him. I think that's kind of the idea of what's happening here. Then he um, begins to focus specifically on the sun, in verse in the the last part of verse four through verse six. He says, "In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat." So he's speaking about the sun. He's personifying the sun, right? He's speaking about the sun as a groom coming out of the chamber, the chamber being the bridal chamber where husband and wife would consummate their marriage. And he's saying, after that, right, the husband comes out with joy, right, radiant. And he also uses the picture of a strong man running his course with joy. So, as someone who has strength, who has endurance, and the sun is untiring right? It's shining, it's radiant, heat and light over the entire earth. And that's what verse six is speaking to, that it's it, it has an extensive circuit, it goes it goes around the earth, and it extends over everything. Everything on the surface of the earth, everything under the heavens, receives heat and light from the sun. So he's meditating on one part of creation, one specific aspect of creation, to indicate the greatness and the existence of God. And he's showing us that That The sun and many other things in creation point us to evidence of who God is. You know, people often will say, there's no proof of God, right? It's just blind faith. There's no proof of God. Whenever I hear that, I I think, yeah, there's no proof of God except for everything in creation, (laughs) except for every single day that we wake up, right? Depending upon the sun to rise, taking it for granted, not realizing so often that God is superintending that he's making that sun rise every single day, that he's in complete control, showing and shining his glory and his majesty over the whole earth, and yet we just think that we somehow deserve this. We take it for granted. We think it's the the product of a mindless universe, just a series of accidents that happened. No, of course not. The, the universe is proclaiming, it's proclaiming the glory of God and the existence of God. But all this talk about God is really interesting because he starts with the name of God, Elohim. So that's is kind of generic name for God. But then he's going to move into the next section, and you're going to see he begins to use the the proper name, so to speak, of of God, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenantal name of God, I guess we should say. The covenantal name of God uses it again and again. And so this indicates that as he's changing from speaking about God's revelation in nature to his revelation in Scripture that there's a way that scripture reveals God that is much more complete, much more full than what we see in nature. We even see in Romans one, when he talks about this, how God's existence and his power are clear through creation. He doesn't say that God's grace and his gospel and his love are clear through nature because those things need to be revealed to us through his word. So natural revelation is perfect. It's powerful. But it's not complete, it doesn't show us all the things we need to know about God. And so we go from the the revelation in nature to verses seven to 10, God's revelation in scripture. God's revelation in scripture. He begins to transition, right? It's a pretty clear transition from verse six to verse seven. In verses seven to 10, he's repeating similar phrases over and over again. The structure is very tight. So he uses some word, Um, that defines God's word. So again and again, he's speaking about God's word through different synonyms. And then he uses an adjective to describe God's word. And then he uses a verb to speak of what God's word does or what it is. So that's what he's doing again and again. So verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. So the first word he uses is law. That's the word Torah in Hebrew. It's the word that we use to to speak about the entirety of God's law. It's a very simple basic word that kind of hangs over this entire thing. So we know all these words are speaking about God's word or his law. So the law of the Lord is the Torah and it's perfect. There's no flaw in it as the idea. It's complete. And so remember in Psalm 18 verse 30 that the psalmist said This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. So David, even back then, was saying God is perfect. His word is always perfect and true. And the effect of it is that it revives the soul. The idea there is that it brings us back to our right state. It makes us alive when we're dead. It has the power to convert people in a spiritual sense. God's word has power to revive the soul. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure. The the word testimony is related to our word for witness. So it's someone who sees something and speaks to it. And so God testifies to the truth. He speaks with authority about this truth that only he has. This is the truth that comes from God and from God alone. And this testimony of God is sure. It's trustworthy. It's dependable. Even when everything in life isn't, God's word is. It's sure. It's sure. And the effect of it is that it makes wise, the simple, the simple person in scripture is the person who is lacking understanding, who doesn't, doesn't have knowledge, right? And often they're kind of tied to the fool because the fool is the one who then acts in a certain way based on that lack of knowledge. And so God's word has the ability to mature you in your thinking, right? None of us are born wise. We're all born simple. We may not be sinful, in the sense of we're not, uh, you know, high-handed trying to sin. Of course, we have a sinful nature, but we may not be the the fool that hates God at the very core of our being. But we're all born simple, lacking understanding, and therefore we will all increasingly fall into greater and greater foolishness. So the Bible describes us as that kind of a fool early on in life. No one is born wise, and so we need God's word to complete us, to turn us to His truth, to give us light so the testimony of the lord is sure and it makes wise the simple that's very encouraging it also brings joy verse eight the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes so precepts and commandments here are basically synonyms they refer to authoritative orders from god that's kind of the idea the same general general idea, and they're they're right. They're morally upright is the idea. They're morally upright. They're also pure. There's nothing unclean in God's word. It's completely hundred percent pure. Remember the words of Psalm twelve six, where where David said, "The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times." God testifies to the to the purity of his word, and he reminds us of how good and pure that word is. There's nothing unclean or flawed in God's word, and it rejoices the heart. It brings joy to us at the deepest level of our beings, and it enlightens the eyes, meaning it gives understanding where we lack it. It reveals truth that we could easily miss. It gives us this comprehensive worldview and it allows us to live our lives well because we know the truth. So these are both, in this verse, verse eight, these are both terms that point to joy and fulfillment in God. In other words, if you want to be a happy, joyful person, you need to know God's word. You need direction from God's word. Otherwise, you'll naturally, like all of us, tend toward greater and greater sin seeking happiness and things that can never satisfy and you'll reap the fruit of that which is misery and destruction now if you want to have lasting joy you need to have god's word you need to read it and listen to it then he shifts from focusing on god's word and how it changes humans to god's word in its nature so he gives the kind of the character of god's word in verse 9 he says the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever the rules of the lord are true and righteous altogether so first he speaks of the fear of the lord now this is interesting because is he still referring to god's word as the fear of god that seems a little bit strange so most people would say what he's speaking here is our response to the torah is kind of the idea that we have fear or reverence or awe and when we live in that way of being in awe or reverence or fear of god that we're able to build a life that lasts when we know god when we hear his word and we respond in the right way we can build a life that is built on the rock that is god so his the fear of the lord endures forever he says the rules of the lord are true that word rules is the word for judgments and this refers to judicial decisions from god things that he rules on that he proclaims as right or wrong. And that judgment of God is always true. Literally, the way it's, it's written here is that they are truth. They are truth itself. They're dependable, in other words. And then he sums all of that up by saying they are righteous altogether. The entirety of God's word is righteous. This is such a clear, comprehensive statement about God's word. That The sum total of them, all of them, from, from beginning to end, is righteous. 100% pure, clean, righteous, and good. Verse 10, he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. The language here is interesting. So the language of desired, it kind of reminds me of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there have been scholars that have pointed to in this whole section from seven to 10 there's probably a a number of allusions to genesis chapter three so just as the first section was sort of a meditation on genesis one it's possible that the the second section is a meditation on genesis three and the fall of humanity by taking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil the the tree that held held promise to make them wise right same kind of wording here or you know it was desirable Same kind of wording here. And so it's it's possible that what David is doing in this is he's pointing to the fact that what humans desired from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what humans desire from sin is actually only found in God's word. That God's the one who can actually deliver on the promises that sin makes, but it never delivers. And he compares it to, I mean, these are very basic images that we can all understand, right? Gold and honey. Gold being that which is precious for you it might be money it might be possessions wealth something like that And he's saying the most valuable thing in the world the thing that you can invest in that you can trust in when when riches, other riches fail that thing that is stable he says god's word is better than that it's more valuable than that it's it's better to be desired than wealth because you can pile up wealth you can be so successful in life and still be completely empty the person who has God's word, <coughs> excuse me, the person who has God's word even if they don't have many possessions, they hold a treasure that lasts, that endures, that gives happiness even when other things fail. And not only that, but it's it's pleasurable, it's sweet. He uses the picture of honey. Honey is that which when we Partake of it, right? When we eat something that is sugary, we it feels good immediately, right? There's a a, a pleasurable sensation, and then we also kind of get this uh, the sugar high, this burst of energy, and so both of these things point to why we desire things that are sweet. We want that pleasure, we want to feel good, and yet it's God's word that is the most pleasurable thing that can point us to that which gives pleasure. That's not just in the moment, but it, it lasts beyond that moment, and it helps us to have pleasure forever. He's using superlatives of things in this world to show us that God's word is better in every regard. It surpasses all the things of this life, and so it needs to be sought after. And so the last section is is a natural outflow of the first two sections. So verses 11 to 14 is man's response to revelation. How is David now going to respond to the reality that God's revelation is this good and this pure. Verse 11, he says, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So the tone sort of shifts here, and David realizes that he needs God's word both in a negative sense and a positive sense. So in a negative sense, he needs it to avoid sin, to be warned about the danger of sin, and also in a positive sense to Keep them to receive a reward. So there's sort of you know a negative reason to, to to pursue God's law to avoid bad things, and a positive reason to pursue good things, to pursue rewards. And this again reminds us of Psalm one, right, which has those two paths and where they lead. God's word is able to do that. It's able to reveal to us how we should live. And so he moved. He's moved to pray to God in verse twelve. He says, "Who can discern his errors?" Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So he's, he's asking who can discern his errors. And the implication is that even though David can't discern his own errors, God's word can. God's word is kind of paralleled to the light of the sun, which shines over the entire creation and nothing's hidden from it. And here, God's word is that. It it reveals what's hidden in our own hearts. It shows us who we are. And we see him now falling on the grace of God as well. As he's convicted of his sin because he's read God's word, he understands that he is flawed, he is sinful, he is needy. He, in verse 13, is asking God for his grace, asking God to forgive him. This should always be our response when we come to God's word. We should be in awe of God and we should be seeing how small or how sinful we are in in contrast, but also we should then fall on the grace of God. If you never get to this point of understanding the, the good news of Jesus, that there is an answer for sin, then you haven't read God's word rightly. And so that's why we, with every sermon that we do at our church, we're constantly bringing people back to the grace and forgiveness of God. So David here does the same thing. He says... Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Those are the the hidden sins, the things that he does that he wants to keep hidden. He's saying, God, you know them, and I need your help. Don't let those hidden sins dominate my life, and 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 uh, don't let them, you know, end up in. Or sorry, hidden faults is the are the the hidden sins, and presumptuous sins are the great and outward sins. Uh, I got that wrong. So hidden faults are the things that he does in private. And presumptuous sins are things that he doesn't even care if people knows right and often when we don't we don't fight sin at the 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 smaller level the level where it's you know behind closed doors it ends up uh, overflowing into our lives and destroying us in some sort of very big and public way and so he's asking god to keep him from that danger to protect him he says then i shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression so remember how in chapter 18 he was talking about how he's blameless how he's you know, rejoicing in his purity and all these things. Well, this is a good reminder that he's not saying that he hasn't sinned, right? He's saying, if I can be forgiven by God, then I will be blameless. So he understands where his righteousness and his blamelessness comes from. It comes from the grace of God. And so he's, he's not like Christ, blameless because he's never sinned, but he's blameless because he has been forgiven by God and made innocent. And then in verse 14, he, he ends with the great words, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So let the words I speak, he's meditating on God's word, on the voice of the revelation through nature and through, through the scripture. And then he says, I want my words to be changed as well. I want the meditations of my heart, what I think about, what I dwell on to be changed. I want to be in line with the rest of creation, proclaiming the glories of God by my words. And so he ends by saying that God is his rock and his redeemer. Again, that word rock brings us right back to Psalm 18, right? Which says that again and again. And he, God is his redeemer as well, the one who purchases him out of slavery. So what are some some practical thoughts just quickly? I only have one that I want you to to take away from this, one big takeaway, which is read the Bible. Read the Bible. Yes, spend time in nature, we could say that. Uh, Marvel at how great God is in his creation. But the greatest way God reveals himself clearly is through his word. How many people throughout history would have given anything to have God's word? And you have it at your disposal. In fact, if you're like me, you have 10 copies of it. Right? You, have, you have it in every version. I have it in Spanish, not even really no Spanish. Right? I have all these copies of God's word. How tragic would it be if we allowed them just to sit and gather dust? If we never opened God's word and heard from him, heard his word, that is able to give joy and life and transformation to people like us. Open his word and read it. How many people in history have died to give you this word, to bring God's word to you? Treasure it, read it, memorize it, love it. This is your very life.